Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning and welcome to the BMO Financial Group Q2 2020 Earnings Release and Conference Call for May 27, 2020. Your host for today is Ms. Jill Homanek, Head of Investors Relations. Ms. Homanek, please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning and thanks for joining us today. Our agenda for today's investor presentation is as follows. We will begin the call with remarks from Daryl White, BMO CEO, followed by presentations from Tom Flynn, the bank's chief financial officer, and Pat Cronin, our chief risk officer. We have with us today Ernie Johansson from Canadian PNC and Dave Casper from US PNC. Dan Barkley is here for BMO Capital Markets, and Joanna Rotenberg is here for BMO Wealth Management. After their presentations, we will have a question and answer period where we will take questions from pre-qualified analysts. To give everyone an opportunity to participate, please keep it to one question. On behalf of those speaking today, I note that forward-looking statements may be made during this call. Actual results could differ materially from forecasts, projections, or conclusions in these statements. I would also remind listeners that the bank uses non-GAAP financial measures to arrive at adjusted results to assess and measure performance by business and the overall bank. Management assesses performance on a reported and adjusted basis and considers both to be useful in assessing underlying business performance. Daryl and Tom will be referring to adjusted results in their remarks unless otherwise noted as reported. Additional information on adjusting items, the bank's reported results, and factors and assumptions related to forward-looking information can be found in our 2019 annual report and our second quarter 2020 report to shareholders. With that, I will hand things over to Daryl. Thank you, Jill, and thank you for joining us this morning. We always value the opportunity to connect with you and particularly do during this extraordinary time. The global COVID-19 pandemic is having a profound and deeply personal impact on all of us. We want all of our stakeholders to know that as one of the largest banks in North America, we feel a clear responsibility to do our part to support the health of the economy. We're working together with policymakers, customers, and other stakeholders to develop solutions to the complex challenges presented by the pandemic. The measures taken by governments and central banks to support the overall economy, individuals, and businesses have been significant and unprecedented. For BMO, the strength and the clear momentum that we had going into the crisis means that we can provide the needed support to employees, to customers, and communities, and to ensure the operational and financial stability for the long-term benefit of our shareholders. Our top priority has been and continues to be the health and safety of all of our employees and customers while maintaining critical banking services. We mobilized quickly to transition 90% of our non-branch employees to work remotely. We implemented strict safety procedures to protect those who need access to physical locations. We're acutely aware of the uncertainty and financial concerns our customers are facing, and we're committed to helping them navigate these challenges. We've provided personalized advice 
and access to a variety of flexible relief options, including payment deferrals for over 200,000 customers in Canada and in the United States. As of last week, we facilitated over $2 billion in funding under the Canada Emergency Benefit Assistance Program and over $5 billion U.S. in loans in the U.S. SBA Paycheck Protection Program, helping 75,000 businesses to keep operating and pay their employees. We're maintaining access to branches, ATMs, and call centers, and we're also connecting with customers and each other in new and innovative ways. We've very successfully expanded our virtual and digital tools to meet customers' needs, including broad use of e-signatures, phone and video meetings, and digitized processes. Our ability to implement these changes quickly has directly benefited from the investments we've made over many years in our technology and our digital infrastructure. Turning to community, guided by our purpose to boldly grow the good in business and life, we've announced several initiatives aimed at helping the communities where we live and work, including donations through the United Way to help get support to those in greatest need. For our frontline healthcare workers who go above and beyond each day to help keep us all safe, we've converted our Institute for Learning building to provide a safe place for them to rest and recover. Together, with MLSE, we've repurposed the kitchens at BMO Field to prepare and deliver meals to hospitals and shelters across Toronto communities. We also know the impact the pandemic is having on mental health as people of all ages struggle with the challenges of so social isolation and an uncertain future. That's why we remain fully committed to our ongoing sponsorship and as a founding partner with Kids Help Phone, reimagining our annual Walk So Kids Can Talk to a virtual Never Dance Alone-a-thon. I invite you to join us on May 31st to help raise funds and awareness for mental health in Canada. And just yesterday, we announced that we've joined others to support a promising pan-Canadian COVID-19 clinical trial being coordinated by Sunnybrook Hospital research team donating $300,000 to this potentially groundbreaking research. Turning now to our financial results, while COVID-19 had a meaningful impact on the bank's earnings this quarter, the bank's operational performance and capital position remains solid. We benefited from positive momentum across all our businesses going into the crisis with a focused strategy and a very disciplined approach to expense management. This quarter, we delivered $2 billion in pre-provision, pre-tax earnings, demonstrating the resilience and earnings power of our diverse businesses. We fully absorbed a significant increase in loan loss provisions, including a $705 million provision for credit losses on performing loans. Our personal and commercial businesses in Canada and the U.S. continue to drive core profitability and revenue growth as both businesses worked very closely with customers. Strong loan and deposit growth was in part driven by customer reaction to the pandemic, which increased loan utilization and a movement to deposit safety. We're now seeing these trends stabilize. Our capital markets and wealth management businesses were impacted by the market volatility and dislocations during the quarter. Capital markets results reflect the increase in provisions for loan losses, primarily for performing loans. Client-driven trading revenues were mixed, with strong performance in certain asset classes offset by negative impacts from the market environment. Underlying performance in wealth management held up very well with 
good net new asset growth in our advisory businesses and very strong online brokerage revenue as our teams supported a doubling of transaction volumes and account openings compared to a year ago. These good wealth results were negatively impacted by market movements on our insurance business and a legal provision. Capital markets and wealth management continued to demonstrate their competitive strengths in supporting the efficient and effective functioning of global markets. BMO Capital Markets was a lead book runner for the $8 billion Global Benchmark Sustainable Development Bond issuance with the World Bank aimed at strengthening health systems in developing countries. BMO GAM was proud to be selected as the asset manager for the Bank of Canada's Provincial Bond Purchase Program, which aims to support the liquidity and efficiency of provincial government funding markets. While the scope and the scale of the economic and social impact of the pandemic remains uncertain, our strong liquidity and capital provide the strength and stability to withstand a period of prolonged economic recovery. Our CET1 ratio at 11% is well above regulatory requirements and supports our commitment to maintaining our dividend payment record. We've prudently provisioned for future losses, have a demonstrated track record of strong risk management, and are singularly focused on working with our customers across industries and geographies to help them withstand and recover, as we always have through every part of the business cycle. Our commitment to improving the bank's efficiency is as strong as ever. On a year-to-date, constant currency basis, we've held expenses flat to last year and maintained positive operating leverage. And we'll harness the speed and agility with which we've been executing change during this period to further improve efficiency in each of our businesses over the long term. We're not alone in finding efficiency, efficiency improvements that will sustain future growth. The economic recovery is likely to be uneven, with some sectors able to rebound quickly and even outperform as they take advantage of accelerating trends that were already emerging. Economies have proven to be resilient, and we salute our personal and our business clients who are incredibly resourceful as we work together with them to overcome challenges and close innovation gaps. We all have a shared accountability to make things better when we get through the other side of this crisis. At BMO, Through the pandemic, we've developed a new way of working that has been core to our strategy for a long time, but has now accelerated as we build a stronger, more competitive BMO for the future. We will continue to show discipline and accountability on how we allocate resources to areas with clear competitive advantages, strengthening value for our customers, and delivering a more sophisticated, integrated approach on digital first, combining the power of our modern technology platform and proactive analytics. Before I close, I'll leave you with my summary reflections on how I feel about our quarter in such unprecedented and remarkable environments. First, I'm extremely proud of how our employees responded, so admirably supporting each other, our customers, and our communities in moments of extreme anxiety and need. I'm proud of our brand and our ability to live our purpose when it truly matters most here, I could not have asked for more. We earned $2 billion of PPPT, comfortably absorbing significant and prudent increases in provisions for credit losses. And we earned this despite meaningfully lower revenues in some of our market-sensitive businesses. We have a strong capital and liquidity position, a disciplined operating plan, 
and very good momentum. The strength and resilience of our overall diversified business model has been tested, and we are performing well through these challenges. As a result, I'm confident that our bank has never been positioned better to face the environment ahead. I'll now turn it over to Tom to talk about the second quarter financial results. All right, thank you, Daryl, and good morning, everyone. My comments will start on slide nine with the highlights of our financial results for the quarter. Despite the challenges of the environment, our pre-provision pre-tax earnings and our operational performance remained resilient. From a balance sheet perspective, we are also in a very good spot with strong capital and liquidity positions. Q2 reported EPS was a dollar and net income was 689 million. Adjusted EPS was a dollar and four cents and adjusted net income was 715 million, both down from last year, primarily due to higher provisions for credit losses, which drove 85% of the decline. Pre-provision, pre-tax earnings were approximately $2 billion, down 5%, and comfortably absorbed the impact of higher PCLs. Adjusting items are similar in character to past quarters and are shown on slide 29. Turning now to revenue, second quarter net revenue was $5.5 billion, down 3% from last year. Higher revenue in P&C businesses from strong loan and deposit growth was offset by lower revenue in our market-sensitive businesses. Net interest income of $3.5 billion was up 12% or 10% in constant currency, driven by higher deposit and loan balances. Net non-interest revenue was $1.9 billion compared to $2.5 billion last year, with the decline largely driven by lower trading, insurance, and market-related fee revenues. Expenses decreased 2% from last year and reflect disciplined expense management. The provision for credit losses was $1.1 billion, and Pat will speak to this in his remarks. Moving to slide 10 for capital, the capital position is strong and well above regulatory requirements. The common equity tier one ratio was 11%, down from 11.4% in Q1. The change in the ratio reflects higher risk-weighted assets in the clear pool acquisition, partially offset by the expected credit loss provisioning adjustment and other smaller net positive items. Growth in risk-weighted assets was driven by strong loan growth in support of our customers and changes in asset quality. As you are aware, during the quarter we instituted a 2% dividend reinvestment plan, or 2% discount on our dividend reinvestment plan. We view this as a prudent action given the uncertain environment and the loan growth that we had in the quarter. Our liquidity position has remained strong and benefited in part from excellent customer deposit growth, which exceeded loan growth. Liquidity metrics, including the LCR, which was 147%, improved during the quarter. Moving now to our operating groups and starting on slide 11, Canadian PNC maintained good core profitability with pre-provision pre-tax earnings of $985 million, up 1% from last year, and net income of $362 million, reflecting higher credit provisions. Revenue increased 2% as the benefit of higher balances was partially offset by lower non-interest revenue and lower margins. <clears throat> Average loans were up 7%, with commercial loans up 14%. Deposit growth was strong, with personal up 12 and commercial up 20%, reflecting higher liquidity retained by customers due to the, due to the impact of COVID-19. Net interest margin was down 10 basis points from last quarter, primarily due to lower loan spreads as a result of a narrowing of the prime-to-BA relationship. While projections are difficult, the net interest margin is likely to drift somewhat lower over the balance of the year due to the, due to the impact of lower interest rates. 
Expenses increased 3%, primarily due to higher technology and pension costs. Moving to US PNC on slide 12, and my comments here will speak to the US dollar performance. Net income of 253 million was down from a year ago due to higher credit provisions. Pre-provision, pre-tax earnings growth was strong at 11%. Revenue was up 6%, driven by deposit and loan growth and higher fee income, partially offset by lower deposit margins. Commercial loans were up 13% and personal up 9%. Average deposit growth was 18%. The net interest margin was up two basis points from last quarter as the negative impact of lower rates was more, more than offset by an elevated LIBOR and strong deposit growth relative to loan growth. The net interest margin is expected to move down somewhat over the next two quarters, reflecting a more normalized LIBOR and the impact of rate cuts. Expenses were up just 2% from last year. Turning now to slide 13, BMO Capital Markets had a net loss of $68 million as performance was impacted by higher credit losses and the market environment. Pre-provision, pre-tax earnings were $300 million. Revenue was down 15%. Global markets revenue declined in the quarter, although performance was good across rates, foreign exchange, commodities, and cash equities. Trading non-interest revenue was negative given the impact of extraordinary market conditions on our equity-linked note-related businesses, as well as credit and funding derivative valuation adjustments. In investment in corporate banking, revenue decreased as higher corporate banking-related revenue was more than offset by markdowns on held-for-sale loans and lower underwriting and advisory fees. Expenses were down 15% from last year due to the impact primarily of a severance in the prior year. The provision for credit losses was $408 million and included a provision on performing loans of $335 million. Moving now to slide 14, wealth management net income was $153 million. Traditional wealth net income of $169 million was down from $236 million last year, largely due to, to the impact of a $49 million after-tax legal provision and lower fee-based revenue partially offset by strong online brokerage revenue. Loan and deposit growth continued to be strong. The insurance business had a net loss of $16 million compared to average income of approximately $60 million a quarter over the last couple of years. The decrease was primarily due to the impact of unfavorable market movements in the quarter. The impact of market movements on our insurance business and the legal provision together reduced earnings per share by approximately $0.15 cents in the quarter. Expenses were well-managed and up just 1%. Turning now to slide 15 for corporate services, the net loss was 80, $81 million, relatively unchanged from last year, as lower expenses and higher revenue were largely offset by the impact of a less favorable tax rate in the quarter. To conclude, our pre-provision, pre-tax earnings, and underlying operating performance demonstrate the strength of our franchise. In what was an extraordinary quarter, we earned through higher credit losses, supported our customers and employees, and maintained a strong balance sheet. And with that, I'll hand it over to Pat. Thank you, Tom, and good morning, everyone. The current COVID-19 pandemic has had a meaningful impact on all of our risk types. With that said, we went into this crisis in a very strong risk position with a long track record of successfully managing risk through challenging times. As such, we expect to navigate the risks of the current crisis successfully and continue to serve our customers across all businesses. The most evident COVID-19 impact in the quarter is on our provisions for credit losses. 
As shown on slide 17, our total provisions for credit losses were $1.1 billion, or a provision rate of 94 basis points, significantly higher than what has been seen in recent quarters. The total provision was made up of a provision for impaired loans of $413 million, or a provision rate of 35 basis points, and a provision for performing loans of $705 million. Based on our estimates, we see approximately one-third of the impaired provisions being related to COVID-19 impacts in the quarter. As per slide 17, this increase in provisions on impaired loans was due to increased provisions in Canadian PNC and in capital markets. In the Canadian PNC segment, the $212 million of losses were driven by elevated consumer losses, with the increase versus Q1 largely related to the impact of COVID-19, and elevated commercial losses, in part related to COVID-19, as well as one larger credit loss that occurred before the pandemic and that involved fraud. In capital markets, the PCL of $73 million, an increase of $20 million versus Q1, was driven by continued stress in the oil and gas markets, exacerbated this quarter by COVID-19-related demand declines for oil. In addition, capital markets had a larger PCL in the apparel retail sector, largely related again to the impact of COVID-19 on store operations. US PNC impaired loan provisions were $124 million, a decline of $8 million from the prior quarter. Transportation finance provisions accounted for approximately $41 million, or 37% of our U.S. commercial provisions this quarter. The remainder of our U.S. commercial businesses saw impaired provisions decline by 17% quarter over quarter. Turning to slide 18, the $705 million provision for credit losses on performing loans was primarily due to the weaker economic outlook, with other factors like changes in scenario weights, balance growth, credit migration and model changes largely netting out. While cognizant of the unique nature of this economic disruption, as well as the substantial support provided by governments, we followed our normal process and portfolio overlay type adjustments were not a large determinant of the overall provision. Our closing allowances by line of business are shown on slide 18. We feel our closing allowances are appropriate when compared to our actual historical impaired loan experience as well as our own expectations for impaired losses in the future. In particular, this quarter we saw a significant increase in the capital markets allowance, reflecting expected continued stress in the oil and gas sector. On slide 19, impaired formations were $1.396 billion, and gross impaired loans were $3.645 billion, or 74 basis points. The elevated level of both formations and gross impaired loans are largely a reflection of continued stress in some industry sectors like oil and gas, U.S. agriculture and transportation, as well as more recent stress on other sectors more impacted by COVID-19, like retail trade and services. Loan growth, shown on slide 20, was largely due to borrowings via our existing accounts, in many cases driven by draws against previously committed facilities. This utilization of revolving lines of credit peaked at the end of March, and has been declining steadily and notably ever since. Consumer loan growth was modest, with utilization levels actually declining in Q2 relative to Q1 in several products. This was particularly noteworthy in credit cards, where balances declined 12% quarter over quarter, explaining about two-thirds of the increase in overall credit card delinquency rates in the quarter. 
Turning to slide 21, we've included a view of our loan portfolio with additional balance information for some sectors that are generally viewed as more impacted by COVID-19. For the purposes of this disclosure, we have taken a very broad view of what sectors to include. And while we are not immune to the stress these sectors may experience, on slide 22, we note numerous important considerations that give us some comfort when evaluating the potential for, for that stress to ultimately translate into loan losses. On slide 23, we provide further detail on our oil and gas loan portfolio. Although the impaired loan rate of over 4% is clearly elevated, we expect to continue to benefit from the reserve-based nature of virtually all of our sub-investment grade exposures in the extraction segment. In addition, we have a prudent oil and gas performing provision of $357 million as of the end of Q2, representing roughly 2.4% of the balance of the entire energy portfolio and 3.2% of the entire portfolio excluding pipelines. You'll note additional disclosure on payment deferral programs in our MD&A this quarter. As of the end of Q2, we had 11% of our consumer balances and 9% of our commercial balances under deferral arrangements. With respect to consumer deferrals, 89% of the deferred balances are real estate secured lending, with 94% of those deferred resil balances in Canada. Of the deferred Canadian resil balances, the large majority are mortgages, of which 33% are insured. The credit quality of consumer deferrals varies by product, but the average bureau score weighted by deferred balances is approximately 750 in Canada and 730 in the US. And the average LTV of deferred resil balances is approximately 60% in Canada and 55% in the US. Commercial loan payment deferrals are adjudicated case by case based on a strict set of criteria, including but not limited to a requirement for all loans to have been current prior to COVID-19, minimum credit ratings, and an assessment that the business is likely to recover. Turning to slide 24, our trading-related net revenue shows several days in the quarter where we experienced notable losses. These days coincided with periods of extreme volatility, historic price declines in equity markets, and unprecedented discontinuity between previously well-correlated assets. Although many parts of our trading businesses performed exceptionally well this quarter, a small number of specific segments saw elevated losses. These segments have been closely evaluated, and where appropriate, material risk reduction actions have already been taken. Although the majority of the company is now working remotely, our operational risk remains within acceptable ranges, and our control activities across all three lines of defense are largely operating business as usual. In terms of outlook, given the historic level of economic stress due to COVID-19, we would not expect to see a reduction in impaired loan losses over the next few quarters, and depending on the length of the crisis and the impact on specific industry sectors, we could see further increases in impaired loan loss rates. We view our allowance coverage as appropriate given our current forecast for future loan losses and as such would expect the performing provision in the next few quarters to be largely a function of the normal factors that influence this provision in any given quarter. With that, I'll turn the call over to the operator for the question and answer portion of today's call. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you are using a speakerphone, please lift the handset before making your selection. 
If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel the question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while the participant register. Thank you for your patience. We have a question from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Good morning. I guess uh, first question on just on credit, uh, Pat, uh, if you can talk to us uh, around uh, the reserve coverage. So when you look at slide 18, one, like and then the comment you made about uh, future performing uh, PCLs, like why is 49 basis points reflective of this macro backdrop and why is that enough? Because uh, we've already seen some sort of uh, concern from investors whether this stack ranks lower against your peers and whether this might be enough given uh, some of the COVID sector and exposures that you outlined. So we'd appreciate some thought process around why 49 basis points is enough and why we shouldn't expect a meaningful increase in that number going forward. Sure. I think I caught most of your question. I would start with, uh, I don't know if you suggested that there was a meaningful increase coming in the provision. I, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say that at all. Uh, the performing provision we would expect to come down uh, from this level uh, in starting next quarter, and so we don't see an increase coming in the quarterly provision. With respect to the appropriateness of the coverage, um, you know, obviously we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that appropriateness. And, um, you know, I think, first of all, you can look at it on an overall coverage basis. Um, you know, if you look at the two, roughly $2.4 billion of the total allowance, um, you know, we think some, a good way to look at it is versus trailing four quarters of specifics. And that gives us about two times coverage of trailing four quarters. And, you know, that includes two quarters of, uh, as you know, significantly elevated impaired PCL. Um, or you could even look at it based on the current quarter annualized, so a fairly stressed impaired quarter um, annualized for four more quarters, and that's still about one and a half times coverage. And so I think when you compare that to the peer set, you'll see that we're actually pretty much in line with uh, with most of the group. Um, and then we also look at it by line of business, and um, you know I think. For me, I look at the closing GA in terms of basis points and how that compares to the historical range of specific loss rates. And, you know, if you look across every business, U.S. commercial is a good example. Um, you know, we have 49 basis points of coverage now in U.S. commercial. The historic impaired rate of that business and for the last six years has ranged between six basis points and 27 basis points. So we think we're actually quite well covered in that sector, um, you know. And then I think you know we look at the at the experience even this quarter in U.S. commercial. Um, you know, we actually saw the non-TF specifics go down this quarter, um, including you know in, in, uh, uh, incorporating some specific impacts from some of the sectors you talked about that are impacted by COVID. So I guess two comments: we're not really seeing significant stress yet in the U.S. commercial book. Um, we think it's a really well put together book that can withstand a lot of stress. And at 49 basis points compared to the historic loss rate of that of that segment, um, you know, to us that feels like adequate coverage. And you know, I think if you look across all of the business segments um, and compare them to their historic loss rates or even some version of a stress loss rate like we're seeing now, you'll see that we're over uh, covered in every single one of the business segments. Got it. Uh, and just uh, on the Ibrahim, sorry, it's Jill. I'm just going to have to jump in with apologies, but I think we better keep it to one question just because we all know we have a hard stop at 8.15. That's fine. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Operator, next question. Thank you. 
The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hey, Guy. Good morning, Pat. Um, in the capital markets, uh, you talked about uh, you know trading losses on on separate several days on on, um, on on certain segments or sectors. Um, can you can you talk about those, those certain sectors? Is it uh, the sectors that 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 are more kind of commodity driven, or or is there something else kind of that that was a bit unusual? during the volatility. Yeah, th- thanks for the question, uh, Scott. I think what I'll do is maybe I'm going to ask Dan to make some uh, preliminary comments on this, and if I have anything to add, I'll jump in after the fact. Sure. Um, thanks for the question, Scott. Uh, I think, as you'll appreciate, uh, you know, the quarter was uh, a fascinating quarter where the early part of the quarter uh, we had some adjustments as COVID came in. The two weeks in March were extraordinarily volatile, uh, and then subsequent to that, uh, in April and now going on to May, uh, we've actually had, uh, I would call it, exceptional results. Um, in that period of, of high volatility, uh, we had a couple of places uh, where we had such extreme market dislocation uh, around historical patterns that we had some exposure. Uh, the first is what we call our equity links note business, uh, and then the second is how we're uh, uh, covering off the, the heading, he- hedging of our exposure uh, around our, uh, our derivative book. Uh, which you will have known as XCA. So those are the two places that we uh, we worked through uh, some of that dislocation through the marketplace. Okay. Thank you. The next question is from Gabriel Deschain from National Bank. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning. Just uh, on the energy uh, provisioning, uh, I, I was a bit surprised that the, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, it's 54 million of specific provisions, and then, uh, you know, thankfully the uh, you gave some additional disclosure on the uh, uh, provisions on, on on performing. You know, similar question to, to Ibrahim's there. Given all the uh, issues that we're seeing in that sector, um, you know, why does that number make sense? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, just play devil's advocate here. Yeah, no, sure. That's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, we think with that rate of coverage, we size it relative to a couple of things. I mean, first of all, that's well above the current loss rate we've seen you know, on specifics over the last couple of quarters. And as you know, the sector is already quite stressed. Um, the, and that specific PCL rate has actually been pretty stable um, in the book for the last three quarters. And so, you know, we have a, we've had a pretty good picture of what stress looks like. The other thing you can look at is what level of stress we would have seen in our book back in 2015-16. 16 would have been the worst year during the last downturn, and there we averaged about 150 basis points of loss in that year. As you know, we recovered a fair bit of it later, but that was the rate in that quarter, so that kind of gives you another bookmark. Um, and then lastly, obviously we do a ton of stress testing on the portfolio, um, and I would tell you that a $35 flat for three years stress test, and keep in mind, this is just a stress test. There's, there's assumptions baked into it, but our best guess of a $35 flat environment for three years running would be roughly about a 2% loss rate per year in that portfolio. Um, and so that kind of gives us some sense that, you know, at two and a half times or two, you know, 250 basis points of coverage um, or, you know, three plus uh, if you exclude pipelines um, is a pretty reasonable number for a sector and actually would incorporate higher levels of stress than we've seen in some of the more stressed periods in the past for that sector and is quite consistent with our stress tests. When, when you do take the specifics, are you seeing, are, are you, 
cooking it when an actual account goes bankrupt or whatever? Or are you doing any, uh, you know, I think these guys are, are going bankrupt, so I'll take a, a specific now. No, we, we, we would take a, a specific provision on every oil and gas account that is currently classified as impaired, and that provision would fully reflect uh, our complete expectation of what the loss would be. So everything in the oil and gas impaired portfolio right now has a specific provision that's been taken on it, if it needs one. Uh, you know, I would, I would remind you that, you know, a huge chunk of that oil and gas portfolio is reserve-based. Um, for example, we had a fair, one very chunky addition into the impaired oil and gas portfolio this quarter. In fact, it accounted for almost two-thirds of the increase uh, of the formations we had in the sector this quarter. And given the reserve-based nature and the significant amount of junior debt that's below us, we actually don't expect to take any provision at all. And so that, um, you know, also gives us some comfort. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is a lot of the producer clients that we deal with, particularly in the United States, um, are hedged. And a lot of them are hedged to the balance of the year. So, you know, they can weather quite well short-term storms. Um, you know, we'll see as, the, as prices play out. But in the short term, um, you know, given that, um, you know, plus the reserve-based nature of our lending, plus our stress testing and our own historic experience, um, we feel pretty co pretty well covered in the sector. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Steve Theriot from 8 Capital. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Thanks. Uh, could we go back to capital markets for a moment? And just the equity-linked uh, note marks. It didn't look like these products really reared their head to the equity line like the last time. I appreciate it wasn't as adverse, but I'm going to go back to 08 and we had a big sell-off. Maybe can you talk about the differences there and would you expect uh, that to come back linearly as the market comes back or has come back in, uh, since, since quarter end somewhat? Or, or is it a situation, it's, uh, I think maybe it was Tom earlier mentioning that you've taken some risk off the table in some spots. So is that, uh, does, does that come back with the market? Yeah, thanks for the question, Steve. Um, I think the uh, the piece I would give you is there was extreme volatility as we moved through uh, that two weeks in March. Uh, and so as you think about some of that normalization, you're right, we will get some of that back over time uh, with that normalization. But also as we went through there, we were doing dynamic hedging, uh, and some of that dynamic hedging will then uh, be permanent uh, in terms of a, a realized loss. Uh, as we think about going forward, uh, we've done a lot to take risk off the book uh, both in terms of uh, market downside protection, uh, making sure that we have matched uh, our term volatility profiles, uh, and then our exposure between different marketplaces, so think Canada versus the U.S., uh, and have worked very, very hard to take uh, that book out and look at it today as being relatively balanced, strong, and immunized. Uh, and again, I do think there'll be some recapture uh, as we go forward. Uh, it's a strong business for us and has been and will continue to be so. Is that dynamic hedging program for that book new or just enhanced? Uh, it's enhanced uh, from where we were. And if you think we've taken uh, a more conservative view of, of our risks, and uh, so we're managing the business that way. And if I look at the, the, the trading days in the appendix, the day that had the $180 million, I think I'm reading that right, uh, loss date, is that primarily the, the, this, this book or is that a combination of things? Uh, it's in every one of those lost days is a combination of many things. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the breadth of our positions, uh, that day in particular was a combination really of uh, the equity link notes as well as the XVA. Uh, if you remember, that was the day of extreme market dislocation, 
<clears throat> just before the Fed uh, came in and put in place its positions uh, with dramatic asset sale prices moving uh, and dislocating. Uh, and so you saw some of the volatility there to the negative. You see the volatility to the positive after that uh, as markets started to normalize. Uh, but, you know, I think of it in my mind as uh, about two-thirds for uh, the equity like Noakes and about one-third for the XVA. Okay. Thanks for that, caller. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Groman from Carmart Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, good morning. As I'm thinking about uh, sort of where PCL ratios peak and also uh, going back to the discussion of uh, the adequacy of, of coverage on the allowance, I'm wondering how appropriate is it to look back, uh, you know, you, you referenced sort of uh, the past few quarters and years, but if you go back farther to uh, past uh, deeper recessions in Canada, the early 80s, early 90s, how appropriate is it to look back to those historical examples to, to kind of gauge uh, the magnitudes? And um, I guess government support is probably one factor. Are there other factors that would make that comparison not the best, in, in your view? Yeah, thanks for the question, Manny. Um, you know, I think you, you, you answered your, your question a little bit right there. Um, you know, what, you know I, I certainly wouldn't discount the possibility um, you know that loss rates could end up being higher than than what we factored into the perf the performing provision. Um, you know, when I think about impaireds going forward, you know we're running this quarter at 35 basis points. Um, you know that's clearly a, a rate lower than what you would have seen in the financial crisis um, or what you would have seen in prior recessions. But as you noted, there are some things that are quite a bit different this 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 time around. Um, not the least of which, as you mentioned, is some very very substantial and quite targeted and direct stimulus provided by the government. Um, the second thing I would suggest is loss rates tend to be very much a function of duration of the, of the economic stress. Um, and, um, you know, in prior recessions, you know, you could think of those as running two to three years before we started to see recovery. Um, in this one, just given the unique nature, um, you know, most of the economic consensus forecast would see a recovery much, much faster than that. And, you know, think about stress on corporates or consumers. Um, a lot of them, particularly when you get to higher quality credit books like ours, can withstand short periods of stress. Um, but things start to get nonlinear in terms of PCL as that as that duration goes longer. So I would say the risk to our forecast is if a, a sharper correction or a correction that is anticipated by the consensus turns out to be much longer than we expect, then you're going to see some upward pressure and likely to push up into some of those uh, more stressed loss rates that you're talking about from prior recessions. Um, the other thing I'd highlight, too, is, is mix has changed over the course of time as well. Um, you know, our Cree portfolio is a great example. You know, we had fairly elevated Cree losses during the last recession. Um, you know, that book looks dramatically different today than it did back then. You know, and so, you know, when we run a stress test today on, this, on, on, a port, on that portfolio, we see very different loss rates than what we would have seen in 08. So I would say those three things, mix, duration, and government stimulus, um, would likely see loss rates lower. You know, I, I'll caveat all that with, you know, we're in dramatically uncertain times, and so, um, you know, that, that forecast could be different. But I think about loss rates as, you know, from 35 basis points where we are today, you know, they're likely to drift up higher, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, likely into the, into the 40s. Um, the other end of that bookend would probably be at the 70 basis point range, which, where, which is be closer to what you saw during the GFC. So hopefully that answers your question, Manny. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Sorry, I was on mute there. Um, questions for Pat. I think, Pat, in your preferred uh, remarks, you talked about just the build-out of performing loans. And I think you mentioned, and I didn't catch it all, so I'm hoping you can flesh it out, uh, the weaker outlook accounted for most of the build and changing scenario weightings, models, and whatnot. That all netted out. So I'm hoping you can kind of just flesh that out a little bit more and talk a bit about more about the process and maybe if you can give some weightings in terms of how much was driven by the scenario changes versus... Uh, the forward-looking indicators and whatnot. Thank you. Sure. Um, so, as I said in my comments, the single largest factor by far was the macroeconomic uh, variable change. So, of a 705 provision, you know that can that the size of the macro impact was about was actually slightly larger than that. Um, in addition, we had some balance growth in there, which contributed about call it about 40 million credit migration, with a little bit of credit migration for about the same amount. There is some FX in there as well that contributed about 50. So those were the things pushing upward on the provision. Um, we had some model changes, which are pretty normal course in any quarter. Um, you know, that adjusted it down by about 60-ish. Um, and then we did change our scenario weights in the quarter um, because uh, we're, uh, our base case is actually much, much closer to what our prior adverse case looked like. Um, and we're now clearly in a downturn, we felt that the, uh, the probability of uh, a benign scenario was about equally weighted to the adverse scenario now, um, just given that we're right in the middle of a downturn or entering into it. And so that scenario adjustment actually reduced the provision again by about $50 million. So those other things all netted out to about the impact of the macro change, and that's why I made those comments at the outset. So the model modeling reduced the performing loan PCL. Um, and, and I get the scenario weightings because you're not going to expect a downturn on top of a current downturn. And so that's the, what you're thinking in terms of scenario. But when you think of the modeling, did I, is, what, what did that relate to? Yeah, that, that, that's probably more detail than I think I want to get into on the call. There's a lot of technical things that, that we, uh, you know, we, we're constantly evolving our models every quarter, um, you know, are always looking to improve the, uh, the efficiency. Um, and then sometimes we'll add sector-specific models where we don't have them. And, where, and so, you know, these things tend to be quite small. This quarter was a little bit larger than you might normal, normally see. But, you know, model changes are completely normal course. Um, we have them, you know, fairly often, as I'm sure most other banks. Thanks, do as well. Okay, that may be something to follow up on. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Mendoca from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Good morning. Uh, can I just ask one quick clarification first? Pat, when, when you talk about performing loan losses declining uh, but impaired increasing, have you? can you offer an outlook on just the total PCLs ratio looking forward? Could the impaired increase sufficiently such that we're looking at a, an impair, uh, total PCLs ratio to a level similar to Q2 in subsequent quarters, Q3 specifically? 
Yeah, I would say if you're thinking about totals, our, our current expectation would be that it would not be at the same level as what you would have seen this quarter. Um, beyond that, it gets pretty hard to predict, as you can imagine, the performing number. There's lots of moving parts in that that can change from quarter to quarter. Um, and so that one's harder to predict. But, um, and, you know, I don't, and based on where I sit today, I don't see a, a large amount of upward pressure on the impaired provision. And so, you know, that gives me some confidence that the net of those two things will be a lower total performing or a total provision number. Um, but just given how much uncertainty there is in the market, I'm a bit loath to try and pinpoint a specific number in terms of loss rate for you at this point. Okay. The actual question I wanted to get to then was, Pat, you talked about the duration being uh, very, very important to the trajectory of credit losses. When you think about setting your performing loan loss reserves, can you talk about when, um, when in your models things are normal? And what I, by that I mean unemployment returns to a pre-COVID level, GDP is activity is essentially back to a pre-COVID level. Can you offer some commentary there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, well, first of all, I'll caveat with that by saying that you know those those things are obviously important, but there are many many other variables that go into the model: triple B spreads, levels of the VIX. So all of those things can move around, um, enhancing or offsetting some of the movement uh, you're that you're the move back to normal that you're talking about. Um, and then beyond that, I would actually just simply point you, unfortunately, to the MDNA. We have some pretty good disclosure there about uh, what we see. You'll see, you know, for instance, in Canada, GDP declined this year of. I, of roughly about 6%, um, and then in 2021, a uh, rebound of 6%. Just the way the math works, that doesn't get you back to flat you know, by, by the end of 2021, but it gives you a sense of how we're predicting the recovery there, and then you'll see similar patterns for the unemployment rate as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Nigel D'Souza from Veritas. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. And it is the last question. Uh, good morning. Thank you. So I actually wanted to follow up a bit on the uh, macroeconomic variables uh, for your performing loan loss modeling. And if I could turn to page 32 of your shareholders report where you outline uh, your updated uh, forward-looking indicators. Um, if I Kind of turned a little bit more positive, so you're, you're expecting a uh, higher home price appreciation in your base case scenario, and in your adverse scenario, uh, you're not you're not expecting or forecasting a decline in home prices. So I was wondering if you could just provide more color on your thinking there, and maybe also touch on what's the sensitivity of your performing loan allowances if in the future you did forecast a uh, more material decline in, in the HPI. Yeah, and unfortunately, you cut out there. I don't know if it, if it was on our end or yours, but I missed a good chunk of your question, actually. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll, tr I'll try and answer it based on what I heard. Um, you know, I think you can, you know, we actually show the adverse scenario there on, on page 32. So you can get a sense, um, you know, and, and we also disclose if, um, 100, if we had 100% weight in the adverse scenario. So that just gives you some perspective. It's about relative to the allowance today, it's about a $600 million increase in the, in the allowance if we move to our 100% adverse case. Um, and so that just gives you some perspective. And um, in there, we obviously don't, or on page 32, we don't disclose all the variables that it would be associated with our adverse case. Um, but that just gives you a sense of the sensitivity. And uh, hopefully that answers the question 
part of which I did not hear. <laughs> uh, so if we have time, just for clarification, just the uh, assumption on your home price outlook, it looks to be more positive now. So I was hoping you could just provide more more color on not forecasting a decline in, in real estate prices, uh, even in your adverse scenario. So, sorry, your question is why are we generally bullish on housing prices? Uh, yeah, according to your forward-looking indicator, it looks like you're expecting prices to be flat or, or higher in, in your scenario ratings here. Sure, maybe I'll ask Ernie. She's very close to this market segment, and so she's probably got some very good color. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, what we're thinking on the on the forecasting related to housing prices is basically what we're seeing now is some some stabilization in in certain sectors and certain uh, geographies. And so I would say right now our position would be that we're going to be remaining quite flat on the housing prices. Obviously, in oil affected re regions, et cetera, we're going to see um, some nuances there. But for now, that's what uh, we're, our indicators are suggesting. Uh, okay, appreciate the color. Thanks. Thank you. I would now like to turn back the meeting over to Mr. Darrell White. Thank you, operator, and thank you to everybody on the call. I'll just wrap up uh, with a couple of summary thoughts. Uh, in terms of bringing us back to our core messages, I would remind you that we're extremely proud, I'm extremely proud of the strong response our teams have had through the crisis. Um, we're very comfortable with our capital and liquidity position, which drives the stability of the bank. The PPPT at $2 billion, despite the softness in our market-sensitive businesses, is very um, substantial relative to the prudent provisioning that we've got in our uh, PCLs, and we're very confident in the outlook. So with that, operator, I will leave the call there, and I wish everyone continued health and safety. Thank you very much. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your light at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.